Welcome back to Frightening Frauen. You didn't say it though. You have to say I it. I know I didn't. Ju- okay. Recording in progress. I was trying not to. I was like, I can do it. I can not do it. But you made me. So I did it. I'm not going to let you. Um, so we have Tyler Lee and a guest Ray on today, who is amazing. Uh, Ray has been working on some awesome stuff uh, in her field of of occupation (laughs) Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about it and what you do and what you've created and how you came to want to do this yeah so a lot of just kind of questions built into that Um, well I am a licensed professional clinical counselor I've been um, in the field of mental health for I want to say about eight, nine-ish years, maybe probably more 10 or or 11, but I've been a therapist for about six years, Um, licensed for approximately two or three. Um, But currently I work with clients with um, complex trauma and dissociation, and I got my groundings in uh, dialectical and behavioral therapy, which is um, usually composed of like a group structure, which is like just a whole bunch of like life skills. And oftentimes people come into DBT um, from the hospital or when they have other life-threatening behaviors, such as like self-harm, chronic suicidal ideation, um, and anything like this. Um, But even just treatment-resistant depression and um, anything else that like normal outpatient therapy hasn't been effective for. And so I always knew that I wanted to get into the field of mental health and specifically trauma, Um, but I didn't really know how to like find my footing. And I just kind of stumbled into a DBT clinic and I had no idea what I was doing, Um, but it was actually a really nice way for me to know how to structure groups because essentially DBT taught me like, okay, here's what people are coming in with here's the skills that you can teach them. And so being just new with the lingo, I was like, okay, cool. I, I know what I'm going to, I know what to say, um, and not just be floundering with my words. So then I started more advanced, uh, trauma training. So I got trained in EMDR and then, um, Minnesota, there are three women who developed what's called the air network model, uh, for trauma and dissociation. And I heard about this, um, after I started working with my therapist in grad school, who actually works from the air network model. So I didn't even know I was in this therapy, um, when I heard about it. And so, what this model teaches is uh, it looks into the neurodevelopment of trauma and dissociation. So it looks into like what happens to our brains and bodies when we go through trauma, um, especially at like those prime developmental ages and how it impacts us growing up. And Then this goes on to show like why we have difficulties, like with regulating emotions. Um, Why, why do we end up dissociating? Um, It goes into talking about like uh, the research and brain scans with dissociative identity disorder to show that like, yes, this is a real thing. Um, And 
So just very complex training. But after I got trained in this, a coworker and I, we, we were taking this training together and we were like, oh my God, there's so much overlap with DBT and air network and where DBT kind of like leaves out clients with a lot of trauma symptoms. And like, we were just seeing so many people who came into DBT and they're like, yeah, these skills are great, but like, I just don't know how to apply them. And I have so much other stuff. Um, so essentially air network, um, we were able to kind of like see ways in which we could utilize that to help bridge that gap between what clients weren't getting with DBT um, through air network and then make DBT work for them. So this is just like workings in our, in our minds. We were like, okay, maybe we could like make an air DBT group. I don't know what this would look like, but fast forward a couple of years later, um, we didn't really think too much more about this. We kind of incorporated this into our group. So we would essentially teach clients um, grounding strategies, but also strategies to recognize when they were like in trauma loops and teach them like developmentally that, or neurologically, this makes sense that right now or in these moments, you don't have access to the skills that you know how to use because the part of your brain that learned those skills is not online. And the part of your brain that is online is these like younger developmental years. So you literally are not, you don't have access You're to the skills that you have. from the skills themselves. Yes, yes, exactly. Yep. Um, and so we, we teach clients how to then build that awareness. So we call it multi-directional attention and awareness. So it's this awareness of like, okay, this is what's happening my brain is telling me like I'm living right like right in the past, like I'm eight years old right now. But then the other part of our attention turns to, okay, let's look around us. What do I know about my present to then decrease the dissociation so that we are not fully dissociated, but maybe in that state of like, partial dissociation where we still have awareness of what's going on right now. And when we gain awareness of what's going on right now, even slightly, we then get access to that part of our brain that has access to those skills. So then we can utilize DBT skills. Okay. And that's where some of like um, the, some of the tools like EMDR or like art therapy and things like mm -hmm. that can come into play to kind of help bridge that gap and teach you how to use those skills during that time. Oh, oh no. Absolutely. Yep. Or then art therapy is always helpful. EMDR. Oh, are we, are we back? Uh, we're back. You froze for a My second. My internet connection is unstable. It says. If you okay, is it, cool. is it better now? Okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Um. Yeah. Um. I think art therapy is always helpful. And then, like, I always hear with like EMDR clients will come in and say, "I was kind of told EMDR would be helpful, and I did it, and now like 
things are so much worse because we go in and process things when we don't have the skill sets to manage what comes up. Because if there is that dissociation, like dissociation is protective. It -hmm. was formed for a reason. Um, And so when we bring back the information that we're disconnecting from, but we don't have the tools to deal with what comes up, it creates more, more distress. Um, so EMDR, we like, it can be helpful. Um, but usually after we do some, um, like more skills use, uh, more, more skills teaching, like through DBT. Um, yeah, I feel like that, I'm that rambling. Makes, that does make sense. No, no, that makes sense. Cause I know with my son who has done EMDR, it was really detrimental when this was another aspect of it though. So he had an amazing therapist that did it with him and he does disassociate. Um, it's mm-hmm. not um, disassociative identity disorder, but he does disassociate and he, um, the therapist quit or got fired. We're not really sure what, and that mm-hmm. relationship ended in the middle of dealing with things and it left him more vulnerable and more like in a worse place. But oh, I yeah. And it took him a long time to trust somebody to get back into it, to try to like, um, to kind of bridge what they had been working on, um, recreate his safe space and, and get to that place again. Um, because people, I know that I think Lee's dealt with this too, of having a therapist and like starting to do real good work and then you lose them. (laughs) You have to start all over again with someone else. And Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been, been challenging too, with when you do something like EMDR, that does take more than one session yeah. to, to get through. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, that, that's the reason why we need to build up so many resources before even starting EMDR so that if any ruptures happen, or if like unexpected things come up between sessions, we have the tools to man- manage that. Um, because then so much disruption can happen and it's much more damaging. It just started raining. It's like really oh, loud. No. And I was like, what is that noise? What's <laughs> happening right now? I was like, oh, it's the rain. <laughs> uh, Lee, have you ever done EMDR or art therapy? Mm-mm. Uh, my therapist offered EMDR and, um, I didn't want to, I just, I wasn't like ready to, to like say things out loud yet. And then, um, my ex is doing art therapy actually, and seems to work really well for him. Um, because he's, he's just so disconnected from himself and the art, you know, these, those homework assignments seem to help him like recognize things that he's just like forgotten how to recognize over, you know, throughout his life. So I think that's pretty cool. I, I haven't Mm -hmm. tried it, but and for um, those listening, art therapy is not drawing. <laughs> what does it stand for again? Accelerated resolution therapy. Okay. Yeah. Um, yes. I when my they first in, asked if I wanted my son to do it, I'm like, of course he can draw. Like what? You- <laughs> okay. So my ex is doing literal art therapy. So not not oh, ART liter- therapy. Literal. Yeah, he's oh. he's actually working with the therapist okay. who uses art as part of like the homework to I do that. Yeah. 
Which I think that is so powerful. Like there's so much that like we can't verbalize that are just has that power to do so for us. And um, I think like finding, finding the ways in which like people can communicate the best in is the most powerful way to do therapy, I think. And so having that specialized approach with art therapy, like it just allows us to tap into this other like creative side that might be able to express more than we can vocally and verbally. And it's something you so can I love continue, I, like continue on doing at home yeah. and like it's something that you can mm-hmm. con- like continue to express in a positive way and realize what your art is actually telling you. Lee does a lot yeah. of art. <laughs> I haven't I haven't <laughs> I haven't learned how to because like like I haven't painted in a while because of you know moving everything but when I was painting um I, I wanted to learn how to connect like how I was feeling to what I was doing and I hadn't gotten there yet. Like I was, I felt like I had just started to get to that point because like I, I have sort of like this block for things. So I'm very like analytical and very functional and I don't, you know, and so and I was like, I want to find a way to get like the feelings to bleed into it. And I was just there, then like everything happened. And so I, I'm looking forward to like being able to go back and get back into painting again yeah your paintings are awesome too so (laughs) I support that they're chaotic (laughs) (laughs) I'm smiling because I can relate to that like analytical piece and just like having that create such an emotional block and it's it's funny because I was literally in therapy today and kind of talking about that and I I always use the phrase, like I can logic my way out of my emotions, or I can like, I can think too hard or try to like figure out my emotions. So, so much that like, I can't end up feeling them. And I, I struggle with art. So my, my creative form of expression is writing, which makes it harder. So I've been trying to like write more expressively. Um, but having like more of a medium of like art, I feel like would be super helpful, but it's, it's also validating to hear that, like you would still experience that like block, um, from like that, those like logic, rash, reasonable, reasonable thoughts, like, um, from your to words, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> But how like your emotions can still get blocked um, from even getting out on a page because of just being up in your head. Yeah, I'm not I'm not really great at like like I I didn't know. But apparently, like most people, they feel emotions all the time. And I don't like most of the time I'm pretty like just whatever. Right. And I feel emotions mm-hmm. in, in response to like stimuli or whatever. But I went through this yeah. phase when perimenopause kicked in <laughs> where I started feeling everything all at once constantly and I basically cried for like a year and my therapist just kept being like just feel your feelings you know and I ended up building this huge vocabulary for like emotions that I'd never had before because I just never really ran into most of those emotions you know and um I don't think that I was like blocked from my emotions I just think that I don't I don't know if it's the autism or whatever but I just don't feel all the time you know Mm-hmm. And like, so if you ask me how I'm feeling, my brain goes, 
and I have to analyze. And then most, most of my answers would be about my body because mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, feeling anything particularly emotional, but, um, mm-hmm. yeah, that, that was a very interesting experience that like gave me like perspective about how like other people who are very emotional that in the past I would have been like, I don't understand what they're going through at all. Like, you know, and it was like, all of a sudden I was like, oh, this is like huge. It's just so, you know, in the body, mm-hmm. but yeah. Exhausting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no kidding. I was very, I would say disassociated from the time I was about 10 until I'd say 24. And there's bits mm-hmm. and pieces that I remember, but I don't remember very many feelings from that time. And I don't remember very many like sentimental things to me that happened. It was like, I was just existing. Um, yeah. And I didn't put both together and it was a very protective thing. It was, I mean, I went through mm-hmm. a ton of trauma starting at 10 until 17 and then bits and pieces of trauma after that. And it yep. wasn't until I was back in college dealing with like health stuff while dealing with going to school and working and taking care of the kids and all of this stuff at once that all of a sudden it was like everything rushed <laughs> into me at once and I didn't mm-hmm. know what to do with it. <laughs> um, so I, I do relate to that, Lee. Like I, I said all the normal like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm okay. Whatever. When people would ask me and never really dealt with anything or shared anything until I was about 24, 25. And then it became an overshare. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I have always been a bit of a overshare. I have like, like private areas that I don't like, but that's why I did the NaNoWriMo like two years ago where I sat down and like, I'm going to write out all of my trauma so that I can actually like just get it out there because that's the stuff I tend to keep to myself. And then that's when I realized that I probably do have like some disassociation because like I didn't really feel very much about any of it except for like when I was done writing I went okay so every single therapist who said that I have a fuck ton of trauma like way more than any one person should go through was okay I can see what they're saying because I would never like they would say it to me and I just feel like okay that's just that's just what I went through like you know Mm -hmm. and then once it was on paper well digital paper I was like whoa, that's a lot, <laughs> you know? And that was kind of my takeaway from it. And um, yeah, yeah. Right. But that's also, I learned I have blank spots too. Like I can remember before and after, but I can't remember the actual traumas and stuff. So that, that was very interesting to me to like, be like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you find, Ray, that a lot more people do have disassociation than are diagnosed? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. Um, So I always introduce dissociation to people as a spectrum because every single human being in this entire planet dissociates to some level. Um, And so the way to understand this better, like it can be helpful to like, look at why dissociation occurs in the first place. So we, we dissociate when like things become too much for, for our bodies. And so, um, like, especially during very important developmental times of our life, 
Um, if there were times where, um, like specific needs, and I'm talking about like first, like few months of our life, like if there were needs that we didn't get met, um, if any part of us were feeling like something wasn't safe, um, during those times, like in those few months and also like the first, like I would say 10, 12 years of our life, um, we cannot acknowledge when our environment is not safe because we don't have control. Um, we don't have control over our environment. So we have to kind of disassociate from that reality a bit, um, to be able to survive it. Um, and so we create, um, in air network, we call stress responses, core survival networks. And so we, we have these core survival networks, like the fight, flight, freeze, um, these, these responses, um, to protect us. So dissociation is protective when, um, things from our external environment become too much internally for us to deal with it. So we kind of like split apart so that, um, we can, we can survive. So the most extreme form I would say is like, um, usually, physical neglect. So a child needs attunement and attention. Um, and a child can still survive. Like if, if like, or I mean, emotional neglect, um, a child can still survive if you feed them, if you meet all their basic needs, but they still need that emotional attunement because we are wired as social beings, social, social creatures. Um, and so we need, we need to take in information from other people to learn like, uh, social, social cues. So learn how to smile, learn how to laugh, learn, um, learn appropriate emotions, how to, uh, regulate our emotions. Um, we need to have someone that we can attach to, to learn how to like self-soothe and regulate someone who can meet our needs. So when those needs aren't being met, even though like our, we have everything we need to physically survive, our body's like, I'm still not getting what I need. So that's too painful. And we have to, our brain kind of severs and disconnects from that reality because our brains are wired, our brains and our brain and bodies are wired to survive. Um, so if we didn't dissociate, if we didn't disconnect and sever from reality, essentially, we, we would just die. <laughs> um, so going back to your question, um, we all have experiences that have allowed us to dissociate. Like we all go through stress at any given time and we've learned ways to shut down. Maybe it's daydreaming, maybe it's zoning out. So we have, I wish I had this, um, the, uh, dissociative spectrum, uh, picture that I show in groups, but on you one wanna, end we have, if you want to send it to me, I can post it when the video posts too, yeah. so that people can see it. Yeah. Perfect. I will definitely do that. So on one spectrum, we have, um, like just the normal, like I'm on my way to work and I get to work and I'm like, I know I left home and I know that I drove technically, but I could not tell you like if I, I hit, <laughs> Sorry, my cat sticking her head in a bag. Um, <laughs> but um, so, 
she's been meowing at my door, clawing at my closet, and I've been trying to ignore her. <laughs> it's so it's so hard <laughs> to ignore them. <laughs> it is, and I'm. A, I usually Our, keep my door open so she can go in and out, but if anyway. you want to, we're fine with the cat coming in and out. Yeah, <laughs> Amos I usually does. Close to get like privacy. Okay, and then I don't see everything going on. But so it would not serve us to remember every single red light or green light that we hit. So like we can't just hold this information in our head because it doesn't serve us. So we dissociate and check out from that. We go on autopilot. So we have that normal just autopilot mode, which we all go on. Then we might get more into like more daydreaming where we have more moments of like, I am zoning out um, and I might like lose my attention and focus and I might be in my head and someone might call my name and like suddenly I'm like, oh yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't really know where I was. Um, and so that's like a few percentages up from normal autopilot. And then we keep on up the continuum. And I, I can't remember if there's something in between daydreaming and, um, depersonalization, derealization, but then we start getting into the middle where we do see more like of that depersonalization and derealization. And that's where we, um, oh, what's before that is like, I think this is where we see more like trauma-based symptoms. Um, so trauma-related dissociation. Um, and so this is where we start seeing more diagnoses happening. The the side of daydreaming and autopilot, that's not really what we diagnose, even though it's still forms of dissociation. Um, then we, then we do have like PTSD and, and whatnot. And with PTSD, there's normal forms of dissociation, um, with any trauma we're, we're going to dissociate. Um, but then when it becomes more prevalent to the point where <laughs> <laughs> to the point where um, we are starting to experience depersonalization and derealization, which is when um, we don't, we start not feeling real. Um, so we might like look at ourselves um, either in the mirror or look down on ourselves and we're like, I have no idea who this is, or I just look funny or like, I just don't feel real. So I have, is like, I have where my limbs don't feel like they're mine. And my doctor called it something, yeah. but is it like that where parts of your body don't feel like it's you? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That would be a form of uh, depersonalization as well. So when I'm kind of going through this with clients, I, I'll say like, if you like pat your arms, you might be like, I know this is me, but like, mm -hmm. I don't really feel like it's me. Like I can kind of feel it, but it takes me like pounding on myself to really like feel connected to this limb mm -hmm. <laughs> kind of thing. Um, and then derealization, I, I kind of describe it as like, um, it can be looking, looking externally through as though we have like a bubble on our heads. Um, it might look like we're watching 
our external environment play out like a movie um, or like an old time reel, but like things just don't feel real. They don't have, we might know that they're real, but they don't have the essence of feeling like reality. Um, And this is like more like diagnosable dissociation because this is more intense than like that, like checking out and daydreaming and um, maybe having what we call like, um, uh, like dissociative reactions or which include like flashbacks and whatnot. Um, So those, the dissociation related to PTSD can often happen when we get triggered or when, when there are um, like, um, just reminders around us. But then when it kind of like goes into your everyday life, like we might see more like derealization, derealization or depersonalization more of the time. Then we move further up the spectrum where we do start seeing like um, maybe some time loss, um, memory loss. Um, these are moments when we can look back on um on the day and maybe we're like I don't know what I did for this chunk of five hours of the day or maybe like I don't even remember the last three days of of this week um it's it's just really fuzzy um I know I was talking to my therapist last week and um she was asking me about my week and I I said I was like I I had a okay week. And I was kind of going from that day and recounting back. And I'm like, I don't know what happened after or like from Tuesday to like into the weekend. Like I I'm realizing like my memory for that is very fuzzy. Um, and then the very far end of the dissociative spectrum is where we see more DID, which this is where we start having like when we do have more like memory um gaps in memory where we might like not have any solid memory for like three years time we might know certain things happened um but we don't really know too much about what happened and we also might notice that like i have I've been told that I did something, said something, or um, maybe I found something that I know was me, but I don't remember doing it. So it it's it's as though like another part of us comes out and is kind of like living our lives for us because we got overwhelmed. So another part had to like step in and kind of take over um, because something got too overwhelming. So from like that um, derealization and above, that's when we start diagnosing like a dissociative disorder. Okay. I think the derealization and then the not feeling like my body is where I get with my PTSD. And I think that's kind of where I was for those years too, because it does feel more like a dream than it did like I was living it. Yep. I have... I didn't really ever think about it as like disassociation. It's something I'll have to uh, talk to my therapist about, but um, sorry, there's a bug, but um, cause I, I mean, I've talked to her about it before where I, there's, there are certain 
things that are like hardships for me don't they don't really feel real and I have to talk myself into advocating for myself and all this stuff because I just it literally just it doesn't feel real and I feel like I'm constantly gaslighting myself because of it it's very um irritating um since I'm since I'm dealing with chronic health issues because it's is a lot easier before that right. because I wasn't you know wasn't running into it but now I'm like you know and I've I've mentioned to her several times where I'm just like this stuff doesn't feel real and that's why when I I decided to do the NaNoWriMo and write down my trauma and stuff it was very like I was very disconnected from it um and it was very like okay well that's interesting I mean I'm kind of okay being disconnected from it after writing it out but 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 functionally it takes a lot of energy to be constantly talking myself into doing the things taking the steps of the things as if it is real when it doesn't feel real like yep you know absolutely absolutely yeah very very hard um um, and so the, um, the air network model that I work from, um, we really work with clients in helping them like one understanding why their dissociation like was created and why it was super helpful, um, and why it continues to be helpful. Um, and then also we, um, there are also like things that we call like, um, things that can be like programming as, um, that, that also get in our way. So like, I'm thinking, um, so things that we might have learned. So your turn, um, your use of like gaslighting yourself, um, that made me think of, um, something that we can easily like learn as something that we it's just second nature sometimes for us to do to ourselves. And so, um, if we were always taught that, like, um, even if we like had a broken bone or were sick, um, if we were, if we were taught, like, it's not a big deal, like just suck it up or this, Rub that, the other thing. On it. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and we, we were taught like, um, all, it's only if you're dying, that's when you go get help. Um, then we start like kind of taking these messages internally as well. And so these can, these messages can range from like a wide, a wide range of things. So it can, um, I mean, I can't even think of a specific example, but, um, over time then like with gaslighting specifically, we can experience like chronic health conditions and like play it downplay it and learn not to advocate for ourselves because it's like, well, I'm not dying. Um, and, um, it's because of like what we've, what we've learned. Um, and so one thing that I've used a lot with people is asking like, um, is this, is this something that you would choose, um, choose to say to yourself? Like, does this feel like it's coming from you? Or do you feel like this message is, has been learned? Like, did you learn this from someone else? Um, and so a lot of this can also like impact just like um, how we how we view ourselves. And um, we can start 
feeling like certain messages that were instilled during times of trauma, like they can really get confused. We can confuse them with like who we are, if that, if that's making sense. Um, yeah. But yeah. So a yeah. lot of like this trauma work with dissociation, um, because these, these programmed message messages can also like increase dissociation as well. Um, so with, with like all the work that we do, we're working on just like untangling all these and, um, bringing in ways to bring awareness to like the present and, um, kind of like not detaching, but I would say, um, re we rewiring our brains to recognize like, uh, right. Trauma has happened. It impacts me now. And that, that is not happening now. Um, and here is what is happening because our brain re-experiences things as if they are happening now. So it's all about trying to strengthen like what we do know now versus like what's been instilled in us like our whole lives. Yes. Um, is that different for people who come to you who are still experiencing trauma? Yes. Yes. So I think it's similar processes that are going on, but we have to be a lot more careful um, working with those who are experiencing ongoing trauma. And it depends on what is the situation. So it, it would look different depending on what is going on. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So if it's something yep. physical and yep. like, like for us, like having chronic pain and chronic conditions going on, which is traumatic um, and it's not going yes. to get better. And so you need to figure out the tools yep. to move forward and deal with it, but also like replace what is going on with disassociating mm -hmm. with tools that you can use. Um, like, absolutely. Yeah. Of course, if yep. it's something that and they need with, help getting um, out of. <laughs> Right. And especially with things like chronic, chronic conditions and, and medical trauma, um, there's a lot that we might need to like work through from like past medical trauma, mm -hmm. um, to like remain grounded when current stuff is going on. Um, because a lot of past medical trauma stuff can cause us to dissociate in the present. And it's, it's then the tricky balance of saying like, that medical trauma is not going on right now. Here's how it's different. And yeah. trying to like find that fine line. Um, but it, yeah, it's, it's very challenging. Um, and then it's also like looking at, okay, how can we use dissociation in our favor? Like mm -hmm. when, when is it maybe not a good time to be present? <laughs> um, I, I talk, I talk with my female clients or, um, um, my, uh, my clients assigned female at birth, um, who have to go in for annual exams. And I'm like, use your dissociation, please. Like you, you have it for a reason. Like you do not need to use your skills in that moment. Let, <laughs> let this work for you. 
<laughs> so which it is a um, skill like to it, be able to put yourself into it and take yourself out of it as well um because like thinking back we kind of dissociate by scrolling through our phones when we need a little downtime <laughs> absolutely oh i'm not Here's- i'm not good at that i don't like i hardly scroll at all like i just you know like i've been making myself watch tv recently because i'm i have a tendency to like like do things that are very engaging and be very focused all the time and I was like yeah I need to I need to stare at the tv or something and it is really hard but it's getting a little bit easier to like just feel because I don't feel like I'm doing anything when I'm doing that you know right but my cat has started uh, my cat um, has started I was gonna say my cat just started cuddling with me after like almost two years and so that's what we so and it's when I watch tv so it's become like that's what I'm doing and you know totally justifiable <laughs> oh I love that <laughs> I approve yeah and I like that you bring that up that like um that desire to want to learn how to just like watch TV and not, not have to think about like what else you have to do. Um, like that, that need to stay busy or occupied can be like a huge hindrance. So, um, part of like with my training in DBT and in air, what, um, what a colleague and I did after a lot of talking collaboration, we eventually got our clinic, our, the clinic that we're currently working on DBT, um, state certified, and we created a curriculum, um, and like made our own like DBT air network program. So it's the only one in the state anywhere, um, that's combining these two approaches. So like with you, with your example, we can, we often talk about like, okay, why do our minds need to stay so busy? What is that protecting? And then like, some of the skills that we teach are like, how do, how do mindfully distract and allow ourselves to do that, um, while letting go of not of like all the, like what we call doing mind thoughts. So I need to do this or should be doing this or this, that, the other thing, um, because it is helpful to, and then also leaning into like those dissociation skills or dissociative abilities as we call them and letting them work for us when, when we need them. Yeah. Yeah. And it's okay to not be and thinking and doing all the time. <laughs> yes. That's yes. hard. <laughs> and it's, I love, I love doing stuff. So it's, it's, it can be, it's partially like a, almost feels like self-denial, but I do really feel like I have to be better at just sitting saying still sometimes and you know it um just like if I can be more comfortable then when I'm really fatigued and my health is really bothering me it won't be so emotionally just distressing when I can't do stuff Mm -hmm. that's yep right right and especially with chronic health conditions there are going to be times where you'll have to like be not doing too much and so to build up that tolerance to sit and just be is really important for those times when like your medical health is telling you like, I need to, I can't do anything right now. Yeah. 
I'll, I'll sometimes mm-hmm. I just repeat resting is a thing you are doing something you know? <laughs> <laughs> yes that's true yeah, and it uh, it's easier to tell someone else that they can do that <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah. Oh, I'm the best hard. at telling my clients exactly what is going to be helpful for them and I am the worst at applying it for myself <laughs> That's, yeah, yeah, that's so. Curse of being a therapist. Yeah. Wow. Any, any anytime like my brain gets super negative, like I what I my trick for for getting through that is uh, would would I think this way about someone else or would I say this to someone else? Mm-hmm. And you know, mm-hmm. it's and and every time like I I'll just be like, no, I wouldn't do that. So obviously, I have noise coming in from some other source in my past, and that's kind of my my way of like, because I, I, I don't like feeling like, like things are getting in the way. So if I feel anxious and it makes me nervous to do something because I'm feeling anxious, I will bulldoze that wall. I like anxiety makes me mad. So then I have to like, I have, that's how I work through it is I go, okay, well, why am I feeling this? What is my, what is the, what is the negativity that's giving me this nervousness? And then and then I just do it anyways, you know, and um, I know it's not that easy for some people. It's just something I taught myself when I was younger, but it helped me learn to differentiate between my own sort of internal noises and other people's noises. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I do the opposite. I'll freeze and not do anything until the deadline is there and then I'll do it all. <laughs> well, that, that's just my ADHD, but <laughs> oh. deadlines are my deadlines are my dopamine friends. Yeah, that's so I, true. I'm more with oh, with Victoria. I freeze, and but my mind is like thinking about it and thinking about everything I need to do, and then I, yeah, and then I'll finally do it at the last minute because I know I absolutely have to. But my thoughts are always like there and not letting me forget that I have to do the thing. Yeah. It's, uh, I fill my time with so much stuff that, so even when I was off work because they, um, I got laid off. I found out everyone else did too. Um, (laughs) while I was in med on medical or going on to medical leave. So I was in the process of going on to it. So I didn't get any money because of that. And, um, I filled my time still, even though I was stuck in bed, I couldn't, I could barely get up. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to do my podcast. I'm going to do like make content. I'm going to edit pictures. I'm going to do all this stuff and ended up filling all my time, (laughs) not giving myself any time to actually rest. (laughs) Yeah, Mm -hmm. And the rest of it was just worrying. So (laughs) yeah. Yep. Yep. Also the first five years I was sick, like was I was just constant just in survival mode trying to keep keep my house and it was so easy to use that pressure to just to just not take the time to rest and then I later when I it took me six years to get doctors that would listen to me so um by the time I got in to see the chronic fatigue specialists and all of that stuff they were like well the first four years are the most important for resting when you have chronic fatigue and like yep. at no point in time did any of the doctors that I saw like take me seriously enough to be like, you need to rest or anything. So I just blew through that that window, you know, trying to keep it together. And 
maybe I still would have had to do that stuff, but maybe I, there are lots of things that I could have just sat my ass down and, you know, (laughs) and it's like how much of the stuff ended up mattering later that we filled our time with or did when we could have been resting. (laughs) Yeah. That's, Mm -hmm. that's something that I have to remind myself. Cause I'm like, usually even if I'm doing one, like one thing, like watching TV or something, I'm doing something else too. And so Mm -hmm. I never, I don't feel like I'm ever just doing one thing and except for when I'm falling asleep. And even when I'm falling asleep, I'm listening to a podcast. (laughs) Can't do that. I can't have any, like my brain, if there's any noise, I am engaged and I am fully awake. I, in order to fall asleep, I have to choose to fall asleep and I'll go to sleep Mm -hmm. really quickly once I make the choice, but I, I have to like do the routine and then I'm like out but if there's a podcast on I would just I would listen to it and then I'd listen to the next one and then you know it's like I used to watch all the classic movies until like Mm -hmm. 10 in the morning because like I'd be like oh I'm gonna go to bed after this movie but then there'd be the next one and I would not sleep (laughs) the entire time (laughs) that's how I am right now with reading like oh yeah books are oh my god I've been in such a bad but so good of a reading kick and like I'm always just like one more chapter one more chapter one more (laughs) chapter and then eventually I'll I'll be like because I have a kindle and so I'll say okay I'm just gonna get to like 75% of the book and then I'm gonna be done and then I'll finish the last 25% later and then I'll get to 75% and I'm like it's only 25% more. And then I'll end up <laughs> finishing a book when I started at like 15%. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I love reading. I'm a voracious reader and I have not read this last year. I normally it's 50 to 70 books a year is like my average. And I haven't read this year because I started crafting and doing art, which is very new for me. And I know that if I get into reading, I have to basically do whatever it is I'm doing. So like, I can't like read and then go do something else. And I know if I get into reading, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop like doing the other stuff. And so I'm just like, next oh year. God. Yeah. <laughs> I I've been audio books. <laughs> I've been wanting to work on my puzzles. I was in a huge puzzle kick. I have one like on our puzzle table. Um, and then my back went out and I couldn't do puzzles. Um, and so I started reading, but now I can't stop reading, but I want to go back to my puzzle and finish the one that's on the damn table. I, love I know puzzles. this. I know this. Totally. Yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I don't know how to make space for all of, all of the things. Yep. And just, I, I do all the things and don't do any of them well. So <laughs> that's, you know, it's interesting because before I got my ADHD diagnosis, I feel like I was much more like that. And I relied very heavily on like deadlines. And then after like being medicated for about a year and all my routines, like I was chronically late to everything. I could not figure out how to be on time to anything, no matter how hard I tried. It was annoying and then so like every time I went anywhere I was stressed out because I was running late and now I'm always on time and it was like I didn't make that choice it was like all of a sudden I was able to start like you know and so I used to just like like start things and never finish them and since the diagnosis I actually will start things I stay focused on them even if I do kind of mix in other things and take breaks and get distracted a lot but that I have that primary thing and then I actually finish it. And that's like, it took me like 
40 some odd years to get to the point to be able to do that. And I never realized how much I'd internalized sort of this, the, the identity of not ever finishing things, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And so every time I finish something, I'm like, wow, I can finish things. <laughs> Most that of my things, be, that's like a huge yeah. change. Most of my things don't have an end. So it's like just a bunch of things I'm constantly doing. <laughs> Yeah, like the podcast. Like the podcast or TikTok or um I guess I, I guess you could say that photography is one that I like have a start and a finish to them and I do I like to get them done really fast. But to me it's one thing because I'm constantly editing because I'm constantly doing photo shoots. So yeah. it doesn't feel like a one single thing to me. Um Yeah, so photography yeah. for me always was just a thing. It was just one big thing. It mm -hmm. didn't it didn't matter if I did a wedding or I went out and shot like a sports thing or whatever. It was just it was photography was just the thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which I love. I love editing. That's my favorite part. And they get That's way my, more pictures. I can't stand it. Like we get trade. Like I love taking photos, but I have I literally have photos that are like 15 years old. I have the raw files and I never they never got Send shared them. because I couldn't I couldn't edit them. My brain was just like cannot do. It. And I was actually hoping that getting the ADHD treated would help. It did not. I just don't like doing it. We have our Dropbox. You can send them to my Dropbox and I will edit them. <laughs> it's my favorite part. And I love seeing them love it too. And yes, I like photos that are just the way I took them. But I know the people that are having me do them like the art in it of, of changing it and making it artistic and seeing it the way that like my brain saw it when we were taking the pictures. And that's why I like doing the like creepier photo shoots, the darker fall awesomeness. And I'm excited to do my Christmas ones because it's different. It's colorful. It's bright. And I'm going to have to figure out a different way to edit them than my presets that I have that I just tweak after that I've created for each, each thing yeah. I do. It'll be but, fun. Yeah, it'll be fun. Uh, I'm excited, but scared at the same time. Yeah, do like snow photo shoots. I feel like snow photo shoots would be so pretty. I have some plans. I want to do some with uh, people in like long red dresses in the snow. So it has that like mm. contrast and I'm planning to do some with Evelyn <laughs> to like, I feel, I, feel like them. <laughs> I feel like you could get pretty spooky with like the snow, especially because like the, the trees are all like mm. dead looking and stuff like that. That would be and it adds the dimensions and different if you um, need any models i volunteer as tribute <laughs> i will accept <laughs> uh, uh, speaking of of which uh last night i uh my other my other daughter rebecca had a um concert trombone and Evelyn went with me and she's sitting there plugging her ears like overwhelmed by the sound I'm like oh I forgot <laughs> uh, Ray and I took uh Evelyn to go see um Aurora <laughs> and Evelyn was like hiding underneath <laughs> I know I was just thinking the other day I was like I was just going through like concerts that will be in town coming up and I'm like what would what would be doable for her? Probably for her outdoor. I think it'll yeah. have to be an outdoor one. Outdoors a lot easier. Yeah. 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 
I, okay. I have such a hard time with concerts. I always go to the very back or like in the balcony where there's less like people being annoying and touching me. And then, mm-hmm. and then like by about halfway through and I don't go to the pre like the openers. I just go to the main show. Cause I know that I'll be toast by, you know, if I go earlier and then by halfway through, I'm so overstimulated that I'm just like, and like the last concert I went to, I went with my son. He took me for my birthday and we, we had a lot of fun, but I reached that point where I was just dragging and I look over him and he's looking like Eeyore too. And I'm just like, yep. <laughs> Good. <laughs> <laughs> yep. We tried. We took her to the back. We, t- <laughs> we right tried outside. so hard. <laughs> But we, we just, we just, yep. Instead, we turned in for the night and like Went got to Taco Bell. Parker, I think Taco Bell, ta- Taco Bell, and then Taco maybe can we like we did get, get pie dessert from Parker. I think pie. so. Yep. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> I think we enjoyed that. Much I more. think she ate my piece too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not surprising. Oh gosh. Yeah. But I understand the overstimulation. It just happens differently for me. For me, it's, it's visual more than sound. And Mm -hmm. so like when I go to like an amusement park or something, there's, and it's really busy and there's a lot of people moving around or it's nighttime and there's lights everywhere. That's when I get like overstimulated and, or if I'm inside and there's a lot of tall guys around me. So that's, that's actually why I stopped going to church was because when they would like stand and do worship or whatever, and there's like tall guys all around me. You can't see anything. You're just staring at the back of them. And yeah. And I would just, I'd have to leave every time. (laughs) So yeah. Yep. I don't think it's on that one. It's all of the above. I mean, I wear earplugs and stuff that helps, but it's like everything, even the physical sensation of like the vibrations. And that's why like outdoor concerts are a lot easier to tolerate in general yeah yeah I like so there's certain vibrations I do like uh but Mm -hmm. I do understand that so like the physical touch and stuff I don't want people all around me either (laughs) um Mm -hmm. but there's a death metal festival I usually go to every year and it's my favorite thing I stand there and there's usually places you can stand away from everyone else so there's no one touching you or anything and I just feel the music it has nothing to do with the words or anything it's like you can feel each individual aspect mm-hmm. of the music like in your body but there's something yeah. like I don't know there for for me like feeling it in my body feels like really soothing but it also it's also very dependent because I've been to like concerts where like the openers specifically for some reason however they play or whatever it is like it's very harsh especially because I I go to a lot of like rock concerts and like these like newer bands with their with their drum sets and guitars it's all very harsh um but yeah that's what I that's overstimulating a lot of a lot of shows they also only do um they only like set the sound levels for the headliner and so none of the other bands sound as good because they're they're that not makes mixed. Sense. That makes a lot of sense. I was thinking that, that while, yeah, while Ray was talking, I'm like, oh, I bet that's why that doesn't, it never sounds as good. I never thought of that. I always wondered why opener sounded so crummy. Mm-hmm. Unless they're big. Unless it's like, yeah, it's really big yeah, shows. I, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. I had, um, when 
was it Muse Paris? was in oh. town. Um, Evanescence had opened for them and they had like another opener. Um, like that opener was rough. Um, Evanescence is my favorite band, so I'll see them anywhere. Um, but like their sound, that was much better. Um, but yeah, compared to the, the first, first opener, it was, yeah, that was so bad. Oh, yeah. I have not been to a live show in way too long. I think. Oh, I went to, oh, panic. I was going to say pre-COVID. No, I did go. So I did go in Colorado because we had, I had uh, box seats at the ball arena pepsi arena if you live in colorado and you don't want to call it that and uh so i saw panic at the disco their last one of their last shows was there and then and they didn't tell anyone so i'm glad i got to go and i saw trans-siberian orchestra uh i think those are the only musical things i saw there and the rest are all like sports games and and monster trucks (laughs) monster trucks yeah (laughs) love that i love the I love the sound. You have to wear earplugs, but I love the sound of the engines, you know? Mm-hmm. I like yeah. the smell. Yeah. <laughs> and then they're just all blingy, blingy, blingy. I've never blingy, been to like blingy. a monster truck rally. Oh, oh yeah, so you gotta, fun. You gotta. Really? At least once. Uh, yeah. yeah. I guess I just don't really know anyone or didn't know I knew anyone. Who, I who, didn't like, went know. to those and never been invited. Yeah, it was from work. I got they were just last minute. We're like, hey, do you want some tickets yeah. to this? And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I like so fun. Yeah. I grew up with it. My parents used to go to tractor poles and stuff like that. And like, I love I love like pickup trucks when I was little. Like, there was like Bigfoot, the first one, and I was obsessed with that truck. And yes, so awesome. It was uh Monster Jam was the one that I went to. And it has a lot of trucks that people follow and they go all over the place. They were up in Canada and like... they have the dog one, the one with the dog. Yeah. Ears. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was a one, there was a devil one that had like breeze fire. And then uh, what were the other, the other ones did cool stuff too. Uh, but yeah. yeah, that, that devil one, that guy, it was a, he's a daredevil. The guy that yeah. Uh, that would be. I was like, I was going to drive digger. one. Grave digger. Yeah. One of the classics. <laughs> uh, you should drive one, but our bodies would. So you'll have to do it right before you die because you'll probably yeah. die. <laughs> yeah. I'll just fall <laughs> apart. Like, you know, I'll sub subluxate into like many pieces and oh no. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> uh, but back to what we're discussing. <laughs> Oh, I actually wanted to ask a question yeah. because we got derailed. Mm-hmm. Art therapy, ART therapy. Like, mm-hmm. can you define that? Because we kind of got like in the yeah, yeah, yeah. So art therapy is actually not something that I'm trained in, um, but it's kind of like a a subcategory of EMDR. So um, it's called accelerated resolution therapy, and it's from my understanding it um, can help. Um, it's not as intense as EMDR. Um, and it, you, it utilizes like very similar, um, uh, like 
uh, not approaches, but like the bilateral stimulation or the eye movements, um, it uses the same approach, um, but it's more of the the protocol that's different. So the script or um, what what we follow with a certain memory. So with EMDR, we're processing a memory, whereas um, ART, as I understand, it's um, kind of like looking at almost changing the memory and how it, um, and how it is stored in our brain. So we can kind of like create a new narrative around this memory. Um, and some, some people are like, well, this feels like I'm, I'm lying to myself. Well, this didn't happen, but it utilizes like our brain's amazing ability to like, just take in information. And if we, if we like replay information or let it solidify, like our, um, it allows our brains to kind of just like, um, like almost download that information as though like that was fact. So it, it's kind of like, if you imagine rehearsing, like, um, playing a sport and you imagine like performing well, um, doing this consistently, has actually shown to like improve your performance. And so we can utilize like imagery. So I think of like EMDR, like using a safe space. So a safe, calm place where we imagine um, just like a safe and calming space that we can bring ourselves to. Um, it might not be actually happening, but our brains don't can't really decipher it from like, okay, I created this versus this happened. So um, it's, kind of like overwriting the memory to make it less, less traumatizing. That's yeah. Instead of like processing the memory itself. I see why so it's, it's less controversial, but I see yep. why it would be helpful as well. Like a, mm-hmm. the narrative, like the way that we narrate our stories to ourselves has a lot of power, you know, because, Absolutely. you know, like you can, make something just completely negative that if you were to just in and and you're not making up anything if you just open up the perspective a little bit to look at something that's happened later that's more positive you can create like a narrative that has more to it and and there's more resilience to be found in that so to me i mean i that's kind of what i'm getting from what you were saying is that that's that was part of it completely yep completely that's awesome. Where, um, what resources would our listeners have to be able to find um, either information or um, their own type, like therapists or things that would be um, able to, I guess, use some of the tools that that would be helpful mm-hmm. for them? Absolutely. That's a good question. So um, in terms of finding therapists, if you are a Minnesota listener, Um, I recommend, especially if like anything about air network or doing, um, any therapy that is more geared towards like dissociation and understanding it and like working with it. Um, I recommend going to the air network website, which let me pull up my, um, it's, and we can, we can post it in the description to the links to it. Perfect. Yeah, it's um, the Air Network Training Institute, and I can um, send Victoria the link to this, but there is a link that um, 
and again, I will post it, but there, there's a link that you can search for therapists in your area. Um, and then also other resources. Um, if you are not in Minnesota and, or if there, I mean, there are air network therapists in other States that you can find on that website as well. There's just limited therapists mm-hmm. available. Um, but if, you are interested in like similar therapies. Um, internal family systems is a really good one. It doesn't necessarily go through all the like neurobiology of, of trauma and dissociation, but it is still very helpful. Um, other resources, let me think. Um, there are a few books that are really good. I would say one of my favorite books about dissociation um, that recently came out this year is a book called Dissociation Made Simple by Jamie Marriage or Jerry Merrick. I don't know how to pronounce their name, their last name, Um, but they're an individual who um, has a dissociative disorder and is um, is a psychologist and kind of wrote a book for people with dissociation, for therapists who work with clients with dissociation, or for people who have loved ones with dissociation. And it's kind of like, as a name implies, like it's dissociation made simple. So kind of just like giving information about dissociation in simple terms um, to better understand it for ourselves, for our clients, for our loved ones. And that is a phenomenal read. And um, it's been it's been a bit since I've read it and I think I'm only halfway through, so I still need to finish it. Um, but it, that one is a great resource. And I would, I would start there if you are like just learning about your own dissociation, like don't, don't overwhelm yourself. Don't overload yourself. Um, but yeah, start there. And if you are curious, if you, have dissociation, like talk with your therapist about it. If you have one, um, if you don't go on to psychology today, um, that is a great website that I recommend. Um, you can search for a therapist in your area and you can, um, uh, kind of search by, um, specialty area. And, um, I also recommend like when you reach out, um, ask a few questions, ask like, what do you know about dissociation? Do you have any specific trainings? Um, how do you work with dissociation? Um, because a lot can say like, I work with trauma and dissociation, but, um, it's more in a general sense, um, Mm -hmm. because there's still a lot we don't know about dissociation. It's still very limited, unfortunately. So interview your therapists or potential therapists and just kind of pick their brains for their knowledge and see, see if it feels like it could be a good fit. That is a great suggestion because a lot of times we don't think about the fact that we can actually pick our therapist and interview them and realize whether or not it's a fit for us. And we don't have to feel bad if it's not a fit and we can move on to another therapist. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. And like, it's okay to like dig into them as well. Like, um, don't just trust the, um, um, like the specialties, um, look at their trainings and then maybe like, if you don't know what a certain therapy approach is, Google what that training is and make sure that this is 
what, what you could benefit from. Um, because a lot of, I've seen so many times that therapists put out, like I, I specialize in PTSD, but there's no training that shows any, any training that says like, you know, anything about trauma. (laughs) Um, so it's okay to really dig into these potential therapists because you, I mean, this is who you're going to potentially be working with and it's okay to be, it's okay to be picky. Um, we don't always get to do with this with doctors. Um, Mm -hmm. so the fact that like there's more information out there, um, for therapists, like utilize that it's okay. Yeah. It's a deal breaker for me. If I'm like, I'd, I'd like to ask you some questions and they're like, no, I'm like, all right, then you don't get my money. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Always ask if they can do like a quick 15 minute phone consultation. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, And I've also had, I've also suggested like to friends emailing and saying like, here's kind of what I'm looking for. Here's some like experiences that I've had that um, have not landed well with me in, in therapy. And, and then do you feel comfortable with these, with these things, or do you have any recommendations? Right. Um, So put, put things out there, ask questions, do research, do digging. Um, It's okay to do all that because essentially this is someone that you are putting all your trust into. And um, I mean, we don't, we don't just go into a committed relationship with the first person we meet on Tinder. And that's what psychology today can end up being for therapists. We find someone available who like checks our boxes, but they might not actually be the right fit for us. So um, if you do do that, you probably need a therapist. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And I'm people, so you cannot come see me. I'm sorry. (laughs) But out there, I am over my capacity. (laughs) What were you saying, Lee? Oh, um, that like with my therapist, it took me probably like two years of like working with her to even like start opening up. Cause like I, for me, I had like a specific thing that I wanted from therapy, which was I was at the height of my illness and I needed a place that I could talk about what I was going through, the shit with my doctors, my body, because it was so traumatic. And I just wanted to be able to vent because I, you know, like as soon as I got sick, like everybody disappeared and I was so isolated. So I basically was like, I don't want to talk about anything else. So don't ask me about my childhood. Don't like, these are like things that are not important to me right now. But after, after, you know, about like two years or so, and my, when my health issues started to calm down, all of a sudden it was like, oh, okay. And, you know, and I started sharing more stuff that like with, I I just never did with previous therapists because the connections weren't right for me. And probably them respecting that you only wanted to talk about those things and they were there for you through that helps you be able to open up later. Definitely. But express those boundaries and were explicit, like this is, I'm not going here. And this is exact, this is what I need. Um, and don't, don't ever be afraid to tell your therapist what you are needing. I, as a therapist, I try to call myself out and say, I'm noticing, I want to go into like a problem solving, but I want to check in with you to see, like, do you, 
do you need me to like listen and validate right now? Or would it be helpful for me to, um, give you, give you some of my thoughts? Um, because like therapists want to help. And sometimes like Lee, like you said, we just need someone to hear us. Yeah. Yeah. I get mad when I get unsolicited advice. So like Mm -hmm. she's learned how to offer, you know, if she wants it, she, she lets me give her permission for that kind of thing, you know, instead of yep. just, you know, cause I get very like, I don't like unsolicited advice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you know, it's sometimes it's useful to have somebody ask you those questions. Well, what about this? Or have you thought about that? And then kind of be like, you know, usually I've already thought about it, but every now and again, I'll be like, I'm going to think about that, you know? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I kind of like that about Lee that, <laughs> that you you're okay with telling people no I don't want this advice from you right now <laughs> yeah I'm very like like on it's Facebook strange. I'll make a post and I'll be like if you give me unsolicited advice I will block you like, and then I'm, they still do it they still do it and I'm just like oh man <laughs> like come on but... or I'll be like like when my when my heart cat died I was very explicit no rainbow bridge stuff that's creepy to me and don't say you're sorry these are things that's a social script that makes me very stressed out it does not feel good to hear it and I said it explicitly because I know that people are going to say it because most people rely on social scripts right so like I put it there I said if you're you know I told you how to love me and you still did the thing you know so I I blocked like 15 people like Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's like yep yep i hate those social scripts we talk about it a lot we hate them too (laughs) yeah it's i don't like some of them have meaning that i can be like i can see why it became a social script and some of them if you actually think about it what are they even saying what does it even mean i don't know right (laughs) especially after like someone passes away or like those are the worst ones those are oh, oh my god or like, yep. yeah, or or health diagnosis. People like they want you to be a warrior uh, instantly. Yeah. There's Other no, they'll have it worse than you. Yeah, like you know, there's no opportunity to just be in the experience, to have grief, to have mm-hmm. pain, to have hardship. Everybody wants everything to be okay all the time, and right. you know, last year, um, in October last year, my dad passed away, and like it was. A leading up thing in March, he had a really bad heart attack that he survived. Um, but we knew he didn't have long. And so I would talk about like my dad's in the hospital again, he's not doing well. And like people would say again, like, I'm so sorry to hear that. Like, I hope he gets better soon. And I'm like, you don't understand. Like, it's not a thing where he's going to get better. He's going to die this year. Mm-hmm. I just don't know when. And yeah. Like that was something that people could not sit with. Like they, I could sense this, like almost, it felt like a need that they had to say, like, I hope he gets better soon. Yeah. Like the, he's, that's what it's like. That's for you. That's not for me. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. I've gotten it with my health issues where people will literally, I'll, I'll mention something that's a forever health issue. It's never going to get better. And they're like, well, I hope you'll get better soon. I'm like, I'm not going to get better. This is a forever thing. And they're so uncomfortable. It's like, and I'm like, you literally just did not accept me, you know, Mm -hmm. and you're uncomfortable. I'm not taking care of you. And I just drop the conversation. Like, Mm -hmm. 
like the trifecta for me, those things only get worse as you get older. Like they do not get better. <laughs> and right now, because I did so much and worked so much, it wasn't even fun stuff because I worked so much. The degeneration from EDS has got has gotten wh- horrible. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I didn't even get to like have anything fun to show for that. But people are like, oh, I hope it gets better. Doesn't like arthritis doesn't get better. Like right? degeneration of your tissues doesn't get better. Like it doesn't, it doesn't. Yeah. Like when you're so young, it's so hard for people to accept that, mm-hmm. especially when you're like, this isn't going to get better. Like 30, 40, even 50, like 20, like that's so young. And so people can't accept, like, I'm just not going to get better. This isn't, this is a chronic condition that is going to continue to worsen. And like, people just can't wrap their heads around it. And they, they themselves become so uncomfortable with that idea that they can't even like perspective take and like get out of themselves to really see like, okay, but how would that be to live that way? Like, why, why are you so adamant about like ending this conversation to like, get out of your own distress. Like good for you that you can do that when this person is living in that cage and can't do that. Like I'm, I'm glad you can do that. I envy yeah. them so much. <laughs> those are, those are people that I don't need to keep around though. It's like, yeah. it's literally like, they've just told me you're not, you're not yeah. a re- receptive. You're not a safe person. So I'm, right. you're, you're not going to be a friend, you know? Yeah. I feel like on TikTok because I've been so open, cause my therapist had me use it like like a diary because <laughs> I'd kept everything in for so long that she was like, I feel like you should try out talking to people by people you don't even know. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it, it helps so much with me. And now I can't shut up, but <laughs> that's my Facebook. I put, I, I journal. That's where I do my journaling. Yeah. And, you know, but, it's only like yeah. three or four people that respond and, you know, if they mute me, that's okay. It's, that's I'm fine. not tr- you know, it's my reality. I'm not, I don't even like exactly. fixate. I don't fixate on stuff in a negative way. And I tend to like, my therapist tells me, she's like, you do more than a lot of able-bodied people do, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and, you know, cause I get very excited and I like, I, I'll be like, oh, this hurts me, but you know what? It, it makes me happy to do it. So I'm going to do it, you know? And, mm-hmm. and um, so I try to share everything, but I try to keep it real. Like I'm, I stay, cause I do have like, you know, like because I, I dress up like in clown and stuff. And so I have a presence that's kind of detached from who I am, but I still will occasionally make sure that I share like realistic things because I know that people have this tendency to like idealize people online and stuff and just like, nope, keeping it real. I'm a clown, but I'm disabled. So yeah. Yep. yep. That's yep. what I was going to say is I mix it in with my comedy and with cosplay and with the fun things. Hey, Mika. And it's not a fake background. (laughs) It's a screensaver. Yeah. Uh, But they, so I mix it in with those things, but I want to stay real. I want people to know just because I'm doing these things doesn't mean I'm better. It's Mm -hmm. not because people will comment on those things. So I'll post something of me on a good day where I was doing something active uh, and they'll be like, oh, I'm so glad you're feeling better. It's like, no, actually, because I did that that day, the next day sucked. <laughs> yeah. Right. I'm like, right. I just spent the next three days in agony, but okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But it, it is helpful for me to mix it in with everything else and be able to have that 
the humor because I've always masked my medical problems with humor because I've had them forever. I've I've been sick since middle school. Um, Aw, yeah, she's so cute. Yeah, I started having like chronic pain when I was like eight or so and mm-hmm. you know, with the EDS and stuff. And it just and I, I didn't I didn't um, I, I, I was taught very effectively to not you know, pay attention to, or take my, my health stuff seriously. So I didn't, I did, um, I had a really good doctor when I was like 19, 20, uh, an osteopath and and that she kind of helped shift my perspective a little bit. So I got a little bit better about taking care of myself, but then I didn't have health insurance for like, Mm -hmm. you know, 15 years. So then I couldn't do anything anyways, but, um, yeah, it's, I talking about it now, cause I used to just feel like it, I used to be like, well, if I tell people how many things I have wrong with me, they're, you know, they're going to think I'm gross or they're going to think I'm less than in some way. Um, and so I didn't used to. And now it's like really impart- important to me that like people see me and that is part of me. It doesn't, mm-hmm. it, it detracts from my experience, but it doesn't really detract from who I am in relation to other people. Yep. Yep. You could be our therapist now. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Um, But definitely uh, send me all the links where they can, um, anything important or any, um, just, you can even type up a bio for me and I will put it in there. (laughs) Sounds good. Sounds good. I can do that. I, I think I can type more articulate than I sometimes speak. Um, you sound so, great. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But I will also include like the uh, link to the air network mm-hmm. uh, website, just so readers can like read that like blip about it to mm-hmm. learn more because there's so much more about it that I, I couldn't even like say. Um, you should start your so. own podcast. <laughs> I know that you, don't have, you have the time for billion things. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I just finished my first DBT air training. That's another thing we're doing. We're training like the public now, other therapists in like our combo DBT air. And we're preparing for our January one. And the I was first gonna, one. yeah, I was going to ask you, are, is there a resource for therapists to find, um, find this as well? Yeah, actually. So, um, parkercollins.com, um, under, uh, training and careers, there is, um, if you scroll down a little bit, there's a blip about DBT training, and then there is a sign up link. If you would like to get trained in what I do. If awesome. you are Yeah. Um, you can attend virtually or in person and yeah. It's not, it's not that expensive for what you're getting. Perfect. I love it. That'll help lots and lots of people. So if you're a therapist out there, you know, you could send this to your therapist. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. You do not have to be in Minnesota to take the training. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Is there anything else you want to add before we sign off here? Mm. Do our super awkward sign off. (laughs) I don't know I would just say that like anyone who is taking the step towards B 
being in therapy, who's doing the work in therapy, I mean, I'm just kudos to you. And if you've been considering it, I mean, even that alone is a huge step. It's scary. It's hard to get into therapy. And um, I also apologize for those who have had really shitty therapists because there are shitty therapists out there um, and just don't give up. Um, there, there are some not so shitty therapists out there too. Um, but you're taking a courageous journey and you, you deserve that. Awesome. That's right. Thank you. Yeah. I'm starting with a new one next month or this month, next month, next month. And I'm scared. So I just started with a new one a couple months ago too. And I'm still scared. (laughs) Mine, mine quit. And then the next one got fired right before I was going to go meet with her. And so it's been like three months that I've been waiting now. <laughs> wow. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited, but also scared because I've no, I need to research them. And- <laughs> <laughs> well, feel free to like message me and I can like, yeah, do yeah. Some of my own digging and be like, thumbs up or thumbs down. <laughs> I'll, I'll send you, I'll send you their information. It's in my portal. So please do. yes, <laughs> I will. Um, but yes, thank you everybody for listening. If you, um, go onto YouTube and you have any questions, I can forward them to Ray and we can get answers or Ray can go on there and, and read them too. And Absolutely. we can get answers or resources over to you. Um, or if there's anything you want to follow up with and we can have Ray again and have some questions that you have, uh, for us to ask, um, we're more than happy to do that. And, um, as always we will put our patron Patreon links and everything in the box and you can join our discord by joining us on Patreon and, um, yeah, so happy day. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.